Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. Uh, I wanted to ask you to turn to John chapter 17. I want to draw our attention to Yeshua's prayer in behalf of his followers. And I want to take you on a little bit of a tour of the scripture. We're not going to just stay right here in John 17. But as we come into a new facility in a new part of the valley to us, I thought I would share something with regard to how we move forward with regard to our ministry that is here. And some of the things that have been drawn to my own heart and my own mind. In John chapter 17, Yeshua is celebrating Passover with his disciples. And I believe in route from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is located, of course, at the base of the Mount of Olives, he begins to teach the disciples as they're walking, his followers. When we get to chapter 17, he now begins to pray. I say this because if you look at verse 17, it says, when Yeshua had spoken these words, those are the words recorded in chapters 14, 15, and 16, it says that he lifted up his eyes to heaven which is a typical manner in which Jewish people pray. Jewish people generally do not close their eyes, bow their head, fold their hands, and look down. Jewish praying is open-eyed, looking upwards into the heavens. And that's how Yeshua is praying. In fact, I remember growing up in the synagogue, we always had our eyes open. We always prayed the prayers from the Siddur. We would read them. And so there wasn't this sort of quietistic sort of encounter. It was really a personal encounter in which we sought to look toward the Lord who is above us. And here it says in John 17 that that Yeshua lifted his eyes to heaven. I suspect he was outside. Sort of awkward to think of lifting your eyes to the ceiling, but he's looking at heaven. So I think he's outside walking to the garden of Gethsemane. And he prays to his father. And he says in verse 5, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they've kept your word. He's praying for the disciples. Those are the ones the Lord has given to him. But he isn't only praying for the disciples who are the 11 that are with him. Because if you look at verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only. I love this verse. 
He's not only praying the things that we're going to look at in a moment for the 11 that are with him. He says in verse 20, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's praying for you and I. He's praying for all those who would come to know him through their ministry. Not only their immediate ministry, but the ramifications of their ministry down through the ages. So Yeshua is praying for you, and he's praying for me. And in this section, he actually provides us with five characteristics that he expects or that he is praying for would characterize the followers of Yeshua. As we plant ourselves, replant ourselves here in Tarzana, I would like these five characteristics to be the goal of our life. The five characteristics to be the goal of your personal life and these five characteristics to be the goal of our congregational life. Now, we're not going to look at all five in great detail, but I want to look at the last one particularly. But I want to point out to you the five that he makes reference to. The first one is joy. If you look, for example, at verse 9, he says, I am praying for them. I am praying not for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. He said, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them had been lost except for the son of destruction. But now I am coming to you. And here's what I want you to just reflect on for a moment. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So that's the first characteristic that we would have joy, but not just any joy. He says that we would have his joy, my joy, and he says that that joy would be to its fullest. Now, what was the joy of Yeshua like? The joy of Yeshua was not a joy that was devoid of struggle and stress and and anxiety and sorrow. Because we know that he would suffer terribly. But in the book of Hebrews, there's a very interesting passage where it says that the Lord went to his atoning death because of the joy that was set before him. So the joy that God is talking about, the joy that Yeshua is talking about, is a joy that supersedes our, our present circumstances. It's a joy that is wrapped up in the purpose of God. The thing that gave Yeshua joy was that though it would involve great suffering, it had great purpose and great ramifications. There were two prominent purposes in Messiah's death. Number one, to bring glory to God because his death was in obedience to the Father and in being obedient, it would glorify him. And that's why he prays that he wants to manifest the glory of the Father. He's talking about fulfilling all that the Father has laid out for him to fulfill. He's talking about obeying all that is written in Scripture regarding what the Messiah would do. 
And in doing those things, he glorifies God. That's a lesson for us. We bring glory to God when we obey him. When we do his will. That's why in the garden he says, Father, if it's possible, allow this cup to pass from me, but not as I will, but as thy will, that your will would be done. Because in doing the will of the Father, we glorify him. And in glorifying him, we find great joy that supersedes the struggles that we may encounter in the process of obeying. And so sometimes obedience is hard. Sometimes it's contrary to our own desires or likes. But in the end result, it will bring joy to our hearts for it will glorify him. But the second thing But the second reason why he went to his death with great joy was not only because it would bring glory to the Father, but it would bring salvation to those in need of it. For there would be no other way in which we could be united to the Father. That is what the history of biblical revelation reveals. No matter what God does apart from doing something for us, there is no way that we would find life everlasting. So the Mosaic law were commandments that if we would do them, we would live in them. But embodied in the law itself was a mechanism for our failure to obey the law. Why? Because God knew from the beginning we would not obey the law that he was giving to us. But the law had a purpose. It had a multiple of purposes, one of which was to reveal the holiness of God. And the second was to reveal the sinfulness of humanity. Sinfulness of Israel, but Israel is one microcosm of all of humanity. And where she fails, all of humanity is failing. Where she succeeds, it's an area where all of humanity can succeed as well. She's sort of like a test case. And so the law revealed not only that Israel could not obey it, but that no one could obey it. If he gave it to the Chinese, they wouldn't obey it either. If he gave it to the Filipinos, they wouldn't obey it. If he gave it to the Well, you fill in the blank. No one would obey it. That's why in the law was provision for its failure to be kept. Why? Because it wouldn't be kept. And so joy would be found in obeying God because the uh, Messiah would bring glory to the Father. But he also went to his death joyfully because he knew it would provide salvation where otherwise salvation could not be provided for. And so the joy that we are to exhibit is a joy that's wrapped up in what Messiah has done for us. And we always have to come back to him in our lives. So the first characteristic he makes reference to here is that of joy. But look at the second thing. He goes on to say in verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. The second thing that he wants to characterize the believers is holiness. That's why he says to sanctify them. And you'll notice he says this twice. If you look at verse 18, uh, 19, uh, 18, he says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. That is to be sanctified means to be made holy. To be holy means to be set apart. 
And to be set apart means to be set apart unto God so that we belong to him, set apart from the world so that we are distinct from the world from which we've been saved from. Now, we have to live in the world. We have to interact with the world. We have to engage in the world. But we're not to be like the world. We're to have different value system. We're to have uh, a different behavior than we might see in the world, a behavior that's reflected in the word of God. So the second characteristic, the first is joy. The second is holiness, righteousness, love for one another, um, a sense of tolerance for one another, patience with one another, the fruit of the spirit with one another and with others. That's what it means to be set apart, to be ones that reflect the work of the spirit of God in our lives to the greatest degree to which we yield ourselves to his work. So we want to be manifesting joy. Like when we come in this, mo- this morning and we're rejoicing, we want to rejoice. And even in our trials, remember what Paul writes, you know, that all things work together for good. All things, not just most things, not just some things, not just good things. All things work together for a good cause, a good purpose. All things includes bad things. Bad things can be used by God to do good things for us. They may be good things we don't see right away. But ultimately, it will manifest itself because the good thing that God is ultimately working in those that believe in him and trust in him is that he's conforming us into the image of his son. Bad things help to conform us as well as good things, sometimes more importantly than good things. So on the one hand, we need to have joy. On the other hand, we need to manifest righteousness, holiness, a sense of obedience to our heavenly father. So it's holiness is the second thing. The third thing he tells us is a commitment to the truth. So if you look again, he says in verse, uh, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So on the one hand, we're to be characterized by joy. On the other hand, we're to be characterized by holiness, righteousness. I can speak a lot about holiness and righteousness, not because I am holy or very righteous, but because I came to faith in a denomination that championed holiness. So much so that their idea of holiness, I don't think was really accurate in its holiness. We actually, when I joined that congregation of believers, I was like 17, 18 years old. And I figured I want to be a part of this. You know, I love the people that were there. I wanted to be a part of them. And so that's why I joined. And then we used to have this phrase, you know, grow where you're planted. And so not keep looking helter-skelter, you know, there's all kinds of good places to to plant yourself. Choose one and plant yourself so that you can grow. And so that was sort of the mantra of this congregation of believers that I was affiliated with. And so when I joined to plant myself there, I got a manual that's nearly as, as thick as the Bible. And it told me everything about how I was supposed to behave. And right away I thought, I saw, this is not going to work out very well. (laughs) Because there was a thing in there about rock music. And that was a tough one because my whole closet were filled with albums after albums after albums. And now what am I going to do with these things? Well, I got rid of them. But then when I learned what holiness was about, I went back out and I bought them again. (laughs) So, you know, it was one of those kinds of things. So I... When I talk about holiness, I'm just talking about being set apart unto God. For some of you, it means getting rid of your albums. I get that. It doesn't mean that for me. 
Doesn't mean that for me. For some of you, it means never, ever drinking alcohol. Doesn't mean that for some others, you know. Whatever we do, we do by faith, Paul says. Some of us keep the Shabbat. Others keep Sunday. It's okay, you know. Let no one judge you in terms of day or or a holy day or even a Sabbath, he says in Colossians. The point is we all have to sort of make our way through this, you know, but that's what holiness is, finding out what God wants from you. Some things he wants from all of us. Tell the truth, right? That he wants from all of us. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's all of us. But some things he wants from you, you know, some of you are musicians. He wants you to play for him. Some of you are musicians. He doesn't want you to play for him. You know, you have to, you have to figure out, you have to figure it out. Some of you are like, some of you are vocalists like Judy wrote on, on Facebook, you know, that, that's not Gary singing. So some of us, he doesn't want to sing. He doesn't want us to sing. I didn't mean it that way. I just meant, you know, just because you can do something doesn't mean that's really what God wants you to do for him. Sometimes he wants you to lay it aside and do something else. So you have to kind of figure that out, you know, and there's no black and white answer there. You have to talk to the Lord and you have to commune with him. That's what a personal relationship is about. So we need, (coughs) excuse me, we need to have joy. We need to have holiness that's personally related to him, doesn't judge one another. And we need to have a commitment to truth. And where do you find truth? Well, he says your word is truth. So that's a commitment to the word of God always comes down to the word of God because all scripture is inspired of God. That's why we call it the word of God. This is his word to us. It doesn't mean everything in there here is true. You know, I know, I was like, what? What did I say? Well, when the evil one said, the day that you eat, you surely will not die. Um, that certainly is, is not true. They would die, you know. But um, nevertheless, what was recorded was truly stated though it may not have been a true, accurate, honest statement. Excuse me one moment here, because Rex keeps giving me tape. I'll play the victim role. It's not my fault. It's, uh, it's Rex's fault. Just trying to tape this up here. So Judy probably didn't hear that last, uh, last thing I said, and that's good. That's good. But uh, in any case... The third thing is a commitment to truth, which is a commitment to the word of God, which is God's word to us. The fourth thing that I want you to see is rather stirring. Look at this. He says in verse 20, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then he says, verse 19, not 20, verse 19, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. He sent them into the world. The fourth thing is a sense of mission. That's a fourth characteristic. We're sent into the world. We should be proclaiming the truth of Messiah in our world. This is a safe place, right? We're here together with one another. We come to worship, to praise, to celebrate Le Zikaron, to rejoice. But we now have to go into the world around us like others came in, went into the world for us. And he has sent us into the world. So when we leave, I remember in one of these churches I once was at, it said at the back of the, over the, uh, what do you call it? The, not the mantle, the, is it a mantle? Oh, door, door frame, 
over the top of the doorframe, it would say, you are now entering the mission world, you know? You're now entering the mission. And so we come in to worship, to be strengthened, to rejoice, to support one another, to give God praise. We leave to serve in the world for we are sent. So the fourth characteristic is we're sent ones. Our tendency is to be receiving ones. But sent ones are giving ones. So we have to give. What is it that we need to give? We need to give Yeshua. We need to give Messiah. We need to give what we've received so that others might receive what we've been given. And so the fourth characteristic is that of being sent. It's sort of a, I'll just say, a a mission mindset, a serving mindset, a reaching out mindset, an outreach mindset. We really need to embrace that wholeheartedly here. That's why I think God has brought us right here because he wants us to reach out from here to there. And so we need to change our focus, I believe, from one where we keep thinking about how do we build ourselves up to we need to be thinking about how do we give ourselves away. You know, how many of you, just show of hands very quickly, how many of you have known the Lord not more than five years? Okay, so relatively recent, really, five years. I know you may think of it longer, but it's pretty recent. How many have known the Lord here 20 years or more? 20 years or less? 20 or less, 20 or less. A few more hands, you know. How many have known the Lord 40 years or less? Anyone here? My hand's up on that one. 40 years or less. Or less. Anyone 40 or more? Yeah, the bulk of you, right? So... I think, you've, I think you've learned a lot in those 40 years. I hope so, right? I think you've, you've received a lot. You know, it's sort of like a person has saved a lot of money and it's stayed in their savings. You got something now. So for 40 years, myself included, plus, I've received a great deal, a great deal through the books, through the schooling, through the, sun, um, through the Bible studies I've attended, through the seminars. I've gotten a lot. You know, how much more do I need to take in? If I keep saying I need to take in more, my life is going to be over. And I'm just going to be expanding. We need to slim down and give out what we've already digested. Even if it's five years. Okay, there's stuff to still learn, but you've learned some things. And some of us who, most of our hands, 40 or more... We should be out there. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says, you know, you should be teachers now. You know, we shouldn't be focusing on the elementary things of the faith. We should be going out. And we should be helping others learn. That's a focus we need to have. And the last thing, this is really what I wanted to focus on, but I won't take too much more time. But the last thing is here. He mentions it three times, by the way. And it sort of undergirds everything in this passage. If you look at verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. He says this over and over again. In fact, look at verse 23. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Unity is the last one. That's what I wanted to focus on because Mary Lou had me read a chapter in um, John Maxwell's book. John Maxwell is like a guru on leadership, T 
team building. And he had a section on unity. And he, something he said in there struck me that I wanted to share with you. Because the thing that brings about unity, he says in this chapter, the thing that causes unity is not same beliefs about something. Same beliefs about something is uniformity. And unity is different than uniformity. There are certain things that we all agree on. For example, we believe Yeshua is the Messiah. We're we're all in agreement. All of us who know Yeshua as Messiah, we're all in agreement. There's no debate on that. But what we do as a group of people that believe in Yeshua, now things change. Because if there's about 80 people here this morning, there could be 80 different ideas about what we should do or not do. And thus, unity is is sort of diluted, right? So it's not our beliefs alone that can serve to make us one because there's going to be differences in certain contexts. There'll be certain beliefs we're going to be homed in on. We have a doctrinal statement. We're all in on that. But where trouble brews more often than not is where there is a failure. Now listen to this, a failure in achieving unity of purpose. And that has been a real challenge in the seven years I've been at Beth Ariel. It hasn't been that the folks I've worked with have not believed same things about many things that have been critical to what it means to be a believer in Messiah. Where we struggled was we did not have unity of purpose. We were in different places. So here we are in Tarzana. And this we must be clear on. What our purpose is. Who we are as a congregation. Now, before I share with you that, I want to illustrate for you the truth of what John Maxwell says. That it's unity of purpose that brings about unity in the body. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about unity in diversity. So he says there are some that have this gift, some that have that gift. There are a diversity of gifts, but there's one Lord, one faith, one immersion that signifies that faith. So there's unity in our core beliefs, diversity in how those beliefs are shared by virtue of the gifts that we have. So unity always has diversity with it, but there must be unity of purpose in order for a congregation to move forward together. Now, the illustration he uses was very striking to me, and I want to show it to you. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of Genesis, right at the beginning. And I want you to look with me at Genesis chapter 11. And Genesis chapter 11 is the story of the Tower of Babel. And it records for us the origins of Babylon. And the origins of Babylon are critical because they're going to play an important role with regard to Israel's history. But I want us to look at this passage for a a different reason. I want you to see how unity of purpose serves to accomplish a goal. So look at verse chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language 
and the same words. Now, that's an interesting phrase because if you look at the end of the section, verse 8, therefore the name was Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Three times he talks about all the earth at the front end and the back end. The goal that the people had was to make a name for themselves and for that name to be spread out over all the earth. But God had something else in mind. He, wa- he would bring about a judgment that would scatter the people over all the earth. But I want you to see this. He says, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks, burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen or tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So now what I want you to notice is these people had unity of purpose. They were coming together for one purpose, to build a tower that would reach to the heavens, almost to invade God's space. And for what reason? Unity of purpose. So that they could make a name for themselves. Now when you read scripture, you can look at this, Isaiah 64, you'll see that what God's desire is that we make a name for God. That we bring glory and honor to God. That we make his name known. But what's happening here is you have a group of people who are unified in purpose and unified in voice. And together they can accomplish their goal, which is to build this tower. And by the way, God affirms that they could accomplish just that, if you look at the next verse. Because the Lord says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people. So they're united. United in what way? Well, they're different backgrounds, different cultures perhaps but they're united in purpose. And look what he then goes on to say. They have all one language. There's only the beginning of what they will do and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Why is it not impossible for them? Because they were unified in their purpose. They weren't pulling at one another. They weren't saying, no, I think the tower should be built here. I think it should only be 10 feet high. I think we shouldn't have a tower at all. No, they were all united in what they would accomplish. But though they would attempt to accomplish this goal of building a tower. It was contrary to the will of God. I'm only making the point, unity of purpose is what leads to the accomplishing of the goal. But here's the other thing that's interesting, just as a side note, I find it significant that it says they wanted to build a tower to the heavens, but the tower to the heavens from their perspective looks pretty awesome. But for God's perspective, it's pretty puny because he's got to come down to see what they're doing. Right? That's what it says. Let's go down and see what they're trying to build. From their perspective, hey, let's reach to the heavens. This is going great. We're almost there. God looks at it and says, man, we got to take a trip because if we're going to go see how tall this tower is, we got to go way down because they haven't gotten very far. But he does affirm that their unity of purpose enables them to accomplish the goal. Now, if you were to turn to Genesis chapter 1, you will see that God 
himself acts in unity of purpose. Because he says in verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. So at the very front end, we have God the Father is involved in creating the heavens and the earth. God the Spirit is moving upon the waters. And if we looked at John, I would say everything that was made was made by the Word who was with God and the Word who was God. So all members of the triunity of God were engaged in the creation of the world. Unity of purpose. They work together. Let us make man in our image. And thus, humanity was brought into reality. That's in creation. But if we think about redemption, which is what we celebrated with La Zicaron, when we think about redemption, it too was resulting from a singularity of purpose. The Lord says, or the scripture says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so scripture is clear. Yeshua just said it. You sent me into the world. John 17, we're back to that. The father sends the son. The son in obedience obeys the father and he comes or goes, but he comes and he gives his life a ransom. And the spirit of God energizes, leads him, fills him, and empowers him in the fulfilling of the mission, the purpose for which he came. The necessity is having unity of purpose. And so here is our purpose. The reason we are is because our purpose is to bring the good news of Messiah to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's not a very lofty uh, purpose. It's a very simple one. It's one that Yeshua gave his disciples in Matthew 10 when he sends them out. He says, don't go among the Gentiles. Do not go among the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now he changes those marching orders. At the end of his ministry, he says to his disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. But what he's telling the disciples is not Every one of them has to go everywhere. He's telling them that the responsibility of his followers is to be everywhere, is to be reaching everywhere. But no one disciple or no one congregation of disciples can be everywhere at the same time. Even if we had all the money in the world, we couldn't be everywhere. We have to be where God plants us. That's why it's a participle in Matthew 28. As you are going, make disciples. We are here. This is where we are going. This is where we are. As we are going here in our ministry in Tarzana, we are to reach the people whom God has called us to reach. That doesn't mean... We're not going to share our faith with a non-Jewish person who wants to know if Yeshua is Messiah. We're certainly going to share with everyone we can. But our purpose is not to share with everyone we can. Our purpose is to make sure we're sharing our faith with Jewish people. That's our purpose. Exclusively, no. But purposefully, yes. And the scripture is clear on this. Because Paul tells us when he wrote to the Galatians that Peter 
was the apostle to the Jews while he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul's purpose was to bring the gospel, the good news of Messiah, to non-Jewish people. Now, did that mean he didn't bring it to Jewish people? Of course not. Every place he goes, he goes to the synagogue. But he made sure that he was reaching the non-Jewish world because that's the world God had called him to serve in. And therefore, he says he magnifies his calling. He magnifies his office. Similarly, we rejoice in our calling, which is like Peter's, to bring the good news to the Jewish people. And so that's our unity of purpose. We can't dilute that. We've got to be about that, praying for it, and seeking God's guidance and leading as we do it. We may do it differently at different times. There's all kinds of ways to reach a given community. But we have to be sensitive to the community of people we are reaching so that whatever means we use and attempt, we might see Jewish people come to know Messiah as Savior. So so Messiah has prayed that we would be a people characterized by joy, that we would be a people characterized by holiness and righteousness, that we would be a people characterized by truth, that we would be a people characterized by mission going out, and that we would be a people characterized by unity and particularly here of purpose. And so right now, you know, uh, things, I mean, I'm loving this here, you know, and I know you are too. But I came with a thought in mind, don't despise the day of small things. But none of us are, (laughs) you know, we're, we're sort of rejoicing, we're loving this, you know. But as we reach out, we'll pray that the Lord will do his work. You know, none of us saves anybody. We just proclaim and we share. But the Lord, we pray, will touch hearts. So let's pray. And the ushers can come forward. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We rejoice in your goodness and kindness. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. And we pray that even as we hear these words of Messiah, that, Lord, you would help us to be the kinds of men and women and boys and girls that you would have us to be. That here at Beth Ariel, we would be characterized by the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. May you fill us with your joy everlasting. We pray, Father, we might be characterized by righteousness, holiness, right conduct and living with right attitudes. We pray, Father, you would help us be committed to truth, honesty, sharing the truth in love, being devoted to your word, knowing it, and living it. We would pray, Father, that you would help us to be about mission, going out, reaching out, seeking others, that they might come to know you. And we pray, Father, that you would bind us together as one, Even as the Tower of Babel, they said, come, let us come together and build. They built something contrary to your will. But Father, we pray that you would bring us together to build something that is is consistent and in accordance with your will. May we build a congregation of believers here made up of Jews and non-Jews 
with a focus and concern that your chosen people would hear the good news. So we pray, Father, you would help us in that. We pray, Lord, you would be glorified in all that we do. For we pray in Messiah's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.